righty. Um, welcome to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. My name is Samaj McDowell. I'm your host. Uh, and this is a platform for young professionals in the realms of foreign policy and national security. Uh, today, I wanted to start off a new series. Um, rather than talking about or at least describing Asia as being emerging, I want to, I want to describe it as contested. Uh, over the past week or two weeks, or even through the presidency of Donald Trump, we've kind of seen really a configuration of hotspots, uh, geopolitical trends, um, and near conflicts uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Um, as space between great powers, primarily the United States and China, um, continue to dwindle, um, reducing the areas of diplomatic efforts um, and the visualization of a new kind of warfare, primarily in ones and zeros, i.e. digital warfare, as well as dollar signs and economic financial warfare. Uh, with me today is a very good friend of mine, um, we go back, way back uh, to the days of George Mason stressing about um, quantitative social sciences. Uh, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good friend, Joseph Ross, um, is on today. So, uh, Joseph, I just quickly... Uh, just kind of give us a back your background, um, academic wise, and what you kind of do professionally uh, before we get started today. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. First off, you know, I'm super excited to talk about my region of focus. Obviously, my love and joy. Um, so, yeah, I hold a BA, obviously, as you said, in government international politics, George Mason University. I'm currently a graduate student in their international security program. Uh, my primary focus of studies so far is a little bit of the conventional security side, the military apparatus, the PRC, um, how U.S. alliances kind of play into that in combating some of China's roles um, or China's goals within the Indo-Pacific. Um, and right now, you know, I've done about three internships within D.C., uh, started off at the Stimson Center, the Japan program, uh, went over to Global Taiwan Institute, and now I'm finally at the Project 2049 where I'm a research intern and uh get to study a lot of the goods of uh, the PRC and, you know, the cool things or not so cool things that they're doing over there. The not so good things. Just exactly. Guy <laughs> <laughs> no, comes. Um, so wait, the, the project 2049, what, it, what exactly, um, you know, is this organization? Is it talking about as, as far as um, evaluation, at least implications up to the year 2049 or is it like, what is it? Yeah. So it's kind of 2049 in general, as a think tank, the primary focus has been uh, PRC studies from the start okay. uh, and how that relates to Taiwan. And I believe 2049 was the general kind of goal year to have Taiwan capitulated and, mm -hmm. you know, within uh, PRC grasp. So that I think that's where the name primarily comes from. But, yeah, a lot of the work we do is um, open source. Mm -hmm. um, Chinese primary source uh, intelligence. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, I don't speak Chinese. However, I speak Japanese, so there's some there's some relevancy there. A um, lot of focus on Taiwan, a lot of focus on the conventional military aspect. But you know, we always take in consideration warfare is uh, multidimensional. So mm -hmm. um, CCP is very mm -hmm. very pronounced in its uh, warfare, um, especially information warfare, mm -hmm. cybersecurity issues. Mm -hmm. um, all that very, very complicated natured stuff. So we have fun, very small team, um, very awesome time. Mm -hmm. That's good. And so um, actually it's a good segue to get into our topic today, which is the People's Republic of China, um, which seemingly, um, especially when Xi Jinping really became, uh, well, as he calls himself, the core leader, um, China has become, uh, let's say, all the more vocal and aggressive on their stances or where they lie within Asia Pacific economic, financial, political security developments, um, you know, making segues into the continent of Africa and, um, uh, as well as Central America, Central Asia. Um, however, I think what we should probably talk about today, um, is the, the Chinese American, military posturing, at least on the conventional level in the Asia Pacific. Uh, you know, you when you hear about China, you hear about the nine dash line, um, going down to at least um in the Spratly Islands, uh with contested um <clears throat> maritime training lanes um in Southeast Asia. You also go up to 
see Japan, uh, Korea, you go into the NLC, um, so on and so forth. But when we're talking about the confrontation between the United States and China, the number one thing that people always want to bring up is Navy. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at, you know, they say like, oh, well, the Chinese Navy, where it is right now, we should, the United States shouldn't be scared mm-hmm. of it because we have aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see is that China, they have a counter to that with these, you know, ballistic missile capabilities. Um, their anti, well, anti-access area denial capabilities. So let's kind of start off with anti-access area denial uh, yeah. with China. So let's exp- have you explain to us, well, what is it to the Chinese? Uh, why is it important to have this anti um, access area denial capabilities. Yeah, so let's see. So the best way to put everything into context is uh, through the factor of Taiwan first, okay. of understanding Taiwan as first uh, geographically. Mm-hmm. It's really the middle or the core, the first island chain, which runs from Japan, the Ryukyu Islands, to Taiwan and down towards the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, within this area, you know, on the left side of it, you have, you know, the South China Sea, you have the East China Sea, um, and that all right there um, is really kind of China's like small operating zone for its Navy. Mm-hmm. So in the long term, China really sees Taiwan as kind of the crown jewel of this area. Right. If it, if it can gain control of Taiwan, it essentially is, you know, Mackinder's, uh I guess, naval version of a pivot area. Okay. Uh, Rightfully. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe it's more like Spickman or something like that with, you know, Cold War containment. Cold War containment or Mahan's um, notions of the importance of Navy superiority. But no, I... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. um, I mean, the the Chinese, Chinese, uh, you know, Navy is very, very Mahanian in nature, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on who you read about a lot of these issues. But Taiwan is the core goal forgetting that. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan is, you know, another is subsetted into this broader picture of gaining control in general of the Asia Pacific region to deny American forces access into the region mm-hmm. and to be able to control um, the uh, ceilings essentially for trade um, and for everything else. Uh, that is kind of one part of it. If you can see itself secure within its eastern front then mm-hmm. it can focus on the western front which i think there's a lot of developments going over there too within central asia um, of kind of setting up secondary lines for its energy mm-hmm. um, and other methods of security so i think that's really the best way at least that's how i you know best conceptualize you know china's very broad strategic goals right so in the form of anti-axis area denial China's strategy right now is primarily anti-access first. Mm-hmm. So that's why you start seeing this huge and massive buildup of its missile capabilities. Um, really, the INF breaking ones, if mm-hmm. we're thinking about that, the short and the intermediate range uh, forces and longer range forces if you're reaching out into the rest of the, um, the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that China realized once let's see, dating back to about the Gulf War and how the United States operates Mm -hmm. is having these power projection capabilities. Um, And there's a couple things that really undergird the U.S. strategy to project power. Mm -hmm. One is being able to have, you know, these solid lines of getting logistics from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And that requires, you know, very, very, um, let's see, it mainly requires runways to be clear. You know, mm-hmm. to really put it simply, uh, runways to be clear, a clean operating zone to get forces in there. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we pretty much beat the Iraqis at that point. Mm-hmm. We had easy access into there. There are no issues. We weren't dealing with A280 issues at that mm-hmm. time. So in this imaginary scenario where you have the PRC bringing forces over into Taiwan to invade, mm-hmm. it's quite obvious that it has the advantage over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. However, the United States is the complicating factor. And if you want to be able to take the United States out, 
you need you need to be able to mass as much force onto the United States as uh, kind of supply lines mm-hmm. and into the oncoming forces coming from California, Guam, Hawaii. So that kind of really brings it into the picture of like why the anti-axis picture is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the area denial is for the forces really that are within the area, specifically based in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, South Korea is definitely a part of that picture too, which is a lot more complicated, I think, than the Japan mm-hmm. picture. Um, but China is essentially aiming to strike fast mm-hmm. with the Cobra Kai, you know, thing, strike fast, strike hard, <laughs> no mercy. <laughs> um, I mean, in a, in a literal sense too. Um, and obviously it goes beyond A2AD as well. You know, right. there's multiple other facets of how, um, you know, cybersecurity plays into their misinformation, mm-hmm. but it's really all bent around believing Taiwan at the end of the day is its territory and it will do anything bar none to gain control of that one mm-hmm. day. Right. Uh, and it's so interesting, you, you know, the, the position of Taiwan, because, well, I will kind of phrase this now into a question is for you. Do you think that there is a good part of China that's hoping that the at least United States Congress um, does not see kind of, uh, you know, the, the scenario of China invading and annexing and taking uh, mm-hmm. Taiwan for their future overall strategic goals? Um, as a American national security threat. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at, for example, you have the Taiwan's Relation Act of 1979, but that act does not explicitly state that the United States is guaranteeing right. the independence of Taiwan against mainland or PRC, China, uh, PRC military incursions. Um, mm-hmm. So is there... <laughs> I mean, you know, inside of the Chinese, you would you would hope, I mean, you would think that the United States will kind of at least take a much more hands-off approach to handling this. Like, you know, we've had instances where United States may position a carrier group right. near Taiwan, but, you know, just last week or two weeks ago, China had released a, a video of, well, this is what would happen if we invaded Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, so how valid in this case, is the Taiwan Relations Act, where China's becoming much more aggressive and seemingly our administration, especially nowadays since it's election time, isn't really doing anything. Right. Or, you know, putting up the question of, as far as overtly, um, open source-wise, of condemning, like, hey, touch Taiwan, you will have to, you know... Yeah. You're, you're, we're going to have to step in. We're not seeing that. Right, right. So it's it's... Taiwan's or the United States' relation with Taiwan is so incredibly complex. So I'm going to try, I'll try to simplify it down, you know, mm-hmm. the best way I possibly can. So before 1979 in the Taiwan, Taiwan Relations Act, um, you have, you know, it's a very strong connection between U.S. and Taiwan. But, you know, obviously once the Cold War, you know, kind of progresses along in the United States, you know, you're Henry Kissinger. Um, your Richard Nixon starts seeing the importance of the PRC in regard to, you know, kind of uh, balancing out mm-hmm. Soviet forces. Right. That's when the U.S.'s view towards that is like, all right, well, you know, we're going to need to recognize the PRC to gain, you know, their help in the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the very, you know, broad thousand foot view. At the same time, when Taiwan Relations Act comes around, that was primary reaction of Congress being worried is like, all right, well, why are we really abandoning Taiwan right now? This right. is an issue for, you know, U.S.'s long-term strategic goals. Right. So in between this time, you see a couple of different, uh, different, I would say not formal agreements, mm-hmm. but semi-formal agreements. Taiwan relations up being the main core of it right there, where it gives the United States the ability to recognize the PRC as China. Mm-hmm. And also, at the same time, being able to sell arms of defensive nature to Taiwan Mm -hmm. through that Relations Act. So that's kind of where Congress comes in. Congress's relation with Taiwan has always been very strong. Right. More than anything else. And it's kind of an anomaly because, you know, when we talk a lot about Congress, we always wonder, like, why doesn't Congress have, you know, this power over foreign policy? Mm -hmm. In this situation, it's very, very strong where it really kind of has set the rules of the game for U.S. relations with Taiwan in a way. 
Um, I mean, we've seen the Thai Pay Act recently, which is, you know, we've seen these different forms of normalization, mm-hmm. um, especially since the Trump administration um, has been in office and as China has become the primary fo- uh, area of focus um, for the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's just, I mean, the Taiwan Relations Act is one part of it. Um, the three joint communiques were a couple of other um, factors within this too, but to keep it simple, the you know, Taiwan Relations Act is really it, and it mm-hmm. signals that Congress is willing to, you know, also play games in geopolitics too, which is, right. uh, I think, pretty good. No, no, I, I, I definitely do um, agree with you. Um, I, I do think that what should also be brought to light when it comes to China is that, um, especially when it comes to the, the PLA and the capabilities of the PLA, well, first of all, it's important to note that technically China as a country does not have a military. It's, you know, the PLA is the security wing of the Communist Party. Um, and so when we're looking at the PLA's capabilities, um, especially now their revamping of their military capabilities, um, in my personal opinion, um, the United States, their strategic failure in this is that we have outsourced a lot of our capabilities um, to China, including mm-hmm. our own readiness for our militaries. So a lot of the times, a lot of the components that our military needs, mm-hmm. China produces. And I think, exactly. you know, and China knows this. Um, and so they continue their lobbyings and, you know, their exporting of these, of these uh, resources and computers and gl- types of uh, glasses they would need for vehicles and laptop screens for presentations um, to mm. the United States and the advent that if a true conventional uh, war, uh, conventional war were to happen with the United States, they could just disrupt the supply line and our, mm. our military is it's essentially in the state of paralysis. Um, mm. But just to make that point, to go now and to go back into the, the conversations of the, the Chinese capabilities to deter our Navy. So in the advent of Taiwan, as you say, the Taiwan would essentially be the projection point in a Mahanian type of approach um, right. to dominate uh, maritime tradings. Um, I think it's very important to stress the, just how important Southeast Asia is um, in regards <laughs> to maritime trading. A third of global shipping goes through Southeast um, Asia. Yeah, um, China wouldn't China wouldn't be able to operate the way they do without you know the Mok, the Malak Strait being literally free and open right. in the way it is, and that, I think that's another reason why you see the multifaceted approach China has to its energy security and why it mm. is so paranoid and acting the way it does within that region too. Right. But. Um, and the, and the so that and then that brings me then to the the Spratly Islands then where you see the, the the development of these artificial islands for the as you said any access area denial capabilities where you may have um, you know uh, American carrier strike groups that may go into Southeast Asia but if you have Chinese variants the S four hundreds and you have um, even their variants to the S three hundreds, and you have their, you know, whether it's ground launch cruise missiles, anti ship missiles, um, the Sukhoi mm-hmm. missiles. Um, what, what then does that mean? I, I don't. I'm just. I'm baffled at how our military has become so spread out and essentially mm-hmm. depleted in its morale by com- doing twenty years. It's been twenty years of focusing on counterterrorism while technically china has had a a cold war mentality against the americans at least since the 1890s mm-hmm. um sun yat-sen did it he, he said it perfectly that in order for china to surpass the united kingdom and the united states um it had to usurp their technology mao took mm-hmm. that but yeah you, know. you you hit the nail on the head i mean it, i think as i mentioned before you know, understanding the approach of where China gets to where it is now all dates back to the first of the Cold War. Right. But then to the Gulf War really is one of the first awakenings. Right. And then the uh, the next Taiwan Strait crisis in 1995, 1996, where that was the punch in the gut right there that really wakes the PLA up and says, okay, so the PLA's whole operations are kind of built centrally or literally around fighting U.S. forces. Right. 
that's right. that's pretty much like what they're trained for. I mean, you have you know aspects of counterterror, um, you know, so on and so forth. Right. But for, I, I mean, I I couldn't agree more about the United States, you know, kind of being in the strategic lull throughout you know counterterror operations and everything else. Right. I mean, you know, the, I, I think you know, bar for another episode, the whole reason why you see the United States kind of strand, scrambling into this idea of strategic competition is as kind of this worry, you know, of saying, oh, well, what if we aren't prepared, you know, to fight China? And at least in my assessment so far and, you know, what I've seen, we aren't prepared by any means. Right. I think if it weren't for, you know, obviously nuclear deterrence is one end that doesn't get talked about, you know, but there's many other, you know, political factors that, you know, will slow, let's say, you know, a PRC reach into, you know, Taiwan. Right. But militarily, I mean, I think where we're at right now is the United States needs to put its money where its mouth is. Mm -hmm. And it it really needs to figure out how it can distribute its forces throughout the Asia Pacific region. Mm -hmm. And not only that is a lot of its technologies that it's built recently and the money that's put down have all been towards counter-terror operations. Um, And I mean, this, these are just one one subset right here mm-hmm. of issues the United States faces. So, at least in my mind right now, and you know, kind of brings me back to my area of studies is for the United States to successfully operate within this region, it's not going to take. It's not going to just take this big draw of you know four deploy forces. You know, however you want to look at it, mm-hmm. that's just one thing. But it's also going to take you know, really, really deep integration with allies. Right. I mean, I'm talking about to the point of, you know, maybe even beyond NATO alliance, not mm-hmm. like multiple states coming together, you know, that's how a lot of people wanted to imagine it. But mm-hmm. let's say, you know, US, Japan, you know, joint forces where it could be at the brigade level, mm-hmm. a Japanese commander, you know, carrying, you know, US troops and right. Japanese forces together in a joint scenario to overcome some of the anti-axis challenges right. here. So it, it, it's really, really difficult where force posturing is one developing a counter A to AD strategy, which mm-hmm. is pretty much just area denial at that point right. of imposing as much cost as you can to the PLA. Right. So, um, and kind of like what you said alludes to, there's a, um, which I'm also an advocate for. There's this uh, realist strategy called offshore balancing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and basically an offshore balancing approach is kind of basically what you alluded to where in order for the United States to really maintain its, I guess, hegemonic status um, in, in the in the world as far as um, global security is concerned, that it has to, in some cases, delegate its security responsibilities in particular regions, especially in the Asia Pacific, to mm-hmm. allow these countries who are at a very imminent danger mm-hmm. of a continual encroachment of the Chinese. So we're talking about Australia, we're talking about Japan, we're talking mm-hmm. about India, um, South Korea, the Philippines, um, some cases even uh, Indonesia when it comes in. Um, Vietnam when it comes to Spratly Islands uh, and other types of economic and in debt treatment um, mm-hmm. policies by by the Chinese that these countries need to lead the effort mm-hmm. and the United States should take those take the the role of either secondary support uh, help with logistics um, but allow as you said the Japanese um, to lead mm-hmm. allow for the South Koreans in these situations to lead allow for the Indians when it comes to the Indian Ocean. Um, mm-hmm. operations to to lead um, these security protocols. Uh, we mm-hmm. we have to understand that the United States does not have to lead every single thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think you. I mean, out of anybody I know, I think you definitely you know understand that it it's not just going to have to be you know about the United States and this you know operation and you know coming up with this whole strategy mm-hmm. you know for it itself you know in a in a I guess in a funny like primacy way to you know, engage the PLA, there's a multifaceted approach with it where you need prioritization, you know, within strategy in general to figure out, all right, well, what are we even doing at this point? And I don't think the United States has sat down to have, you know, the deep winded conversation. I was like, okay, well, you know, if we're going to compete with China, you know, we are going to have to, you know, give way into the, in the middle East and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to see, 
you know, Russia pull up in there. We're going to see other moves, you know, over in the Middle East. Right. But, you know, for the United States, you kind of have to bite your tongue and say, hey, what's the bigger, you know, strategic objective here? Right. So, I mean, one way of it is I, I think the United States will have to inevitably lead, you know, this semi-coalition of the willing, you know, and right. I think we've seen it in more of um you know, the, the hub and spoke model of the U.S., you know, mm-hmm. chi- or sorry, U.S., uh, Japan, U.S., Taiwan, or sorry, U.S., Japan, U.S., <laughs> Australia forces, you know, but melding those together to create an overall security network of understanding is, hey, you know, we're all kind of screwed in this. And if anything, you know, Japan, Australia, your security is more bent on mm-hmm. anything else. And if you look at a lot of the strategic doctrine that both countries, you know, that I just mentioned just now have released Japan and Australia are just now getting serious, you know, about the issues that uh, China is facing. And Mm -hmm. they've been kind of out of the, out of the ballpark for a while, but once again, their, their, their whole strategy is hedged on the United States at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if you have your alliance the main point of the alliance, obviously, is to use it. Right. So, I mean, not to say we haven't been using it in the way of, you know, forward basing, you know, increased ties between each one of the countries, trading. Mm-hmm. That's cool and all. But when tire hits the road, is a Japanese self-defense forces member willing to die for United States, you know, exactly. um, Army, Navy, Air right. Force member, Space Force member, you know, whatever you want to name it. But and vice versa, now. too. That's the difficulty. That, that is a difficulty. But then to go to flip that then with the current reality of American politics, mm-hmm. is the American public open and willing to allow for Americans to die for Japanese soldiers? Mm-hmm. You know, now we're this is no this is no longer the traditional sense of a Cold War when it was between the United States and the Soviet Union. At the height of the, the Soviet Union's power, they only constituted about 40% of the American GDP. It right. was never an economic Cold War. We knew that. If we could right. continue to outspend the Soviet Union, they would eventually capitulate. Soviet mm-hmm. Union was an artificial union of yeah. some sorts. You know, it, it was going to fall eventually, whether they wanted to admit it or not. Yeah, China's different, especially after they've joined the WTO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've solved their 7% growth rates, their 8% growth yep. rates. And now they're sitting at, sitting at at least 65% of American GDP. They've integrated themselves into the global con- into the global economy, uh, mm-hmm. international institutions. So when people, you know, say the notions of, oh, well, we'll, we'll just contain China. No, you can't. <laughs> you, can't you can't contain them in the traditional sense. Exactly. Chinese growth is literally based off of the foundations of the American liberal economy, at least the the global liberal economy, after the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference. This is what mm-hmm. we wanted. It was like, hey, look at China. You know, yeah. they, they are the story of what happens when you liberalize your economy. Yeah. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that for American policymakers, when we conduct our grant, when we produce our grant strategy, we don't really take culture, cultural mindsets and cultural differences in mind until we, it's a pressing matter and we really need it to establish some sort of strategy. We don't really understand the Chinese cultural mindset. Right. If you want to know Chinese strategic military doctrine, you must know their strategic culture. Yeah. And part of their culture is deception. Mm-hmm. It is. Like, the, I'm just going to say it like that. It's it's deception. And how in the West, we like to condemn deception because we see it as a very negative thing to try to deceive somebody. Mm-hmm. If you look at Chinese lore and Chinese um, tales, at least going back to the warring states periods, mm-hmm. they glorify deception because yeah. they see it as a... An ability of high intellect. If I'm able to deceive you to do what I want you to do without you knowing you're doing what I want you to do. Right. That that's brilliant. And we're seeing that China since the 1970s. Since the 1970s. No, 
1960s when they tested an atomic bomb to tell the Russians to back off. Um, they got the United States to open their doors blindly and provide China with the technology they needed in order to continue their growth. So I don't know if you if you've heard of the the one two three agreement. Um, and I highly recommend the book um, Stealth War. It was written by U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. Um, and part of Chapter Four, uh, Military Crisis Chapter, he talk he brings up this uh, this notion of the one two three agreement, which is is named after this the hundred and twenty third section of the Atomic Energy Act of nineteen fifty four. Yeah which is basically is allowing for nuclear cooperation with nuclear technology. Mm. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> in 2015, um, there was a memo to essentially add China to that list mm. of basically cooperation for nuclear technology, right. especially when it comes down to nuclear reactors. Yeah. So, I mean, I, not to bl- not to blame shift anybody here, but oh, it's right. interesting when when the one two three agreement, you know, comes around. I think this is nineteen fifty four, and it's funny because I, I was just reading in one class, the science and technology class, that Eisenhower at the time was very, you know, as much as we as much as we love Eisenhower, one downfall was he was very much in the mindset of like, hey, you know, how can we take the nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. you know, uh, part of the equation right. out of nuclear energy. And I mean, it, it sounds good in theory, you mm-hmm. know, because nuclear energy, I think is, you know, it, it's kind of underlooked for what it is and it's becoming a lot more safe, you know, but the political costs are high, but right. that's a different conversation. Anyway, Eisenhower didn't have a problem exporting half of, you know, these nuclear agreements out to the countries, right. you know, that's where you see the development of, you know, India at the end of the right. day. Pakistan eventually, um, I mean, not exactly from directly from the agreement, but, you know, Japan has, you know, uh, nuclear reactors, you know, from agreements with the United States, for example. So it's interesting seeing this, this really biased product Mm -hmm. from all the way back then completely affect, you know, China at the end of the day with its own nuclear weapon, you know, development and, yeah. No, no, exactly. Because uh, I know earlier in the year today, or um, this year, China, uh, this is when the START program, primarily with um, the United States and Russia, was kind of returning back to negotiations because, you know, it's over. It's, technically, it expires in February of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a push, essentially, to bring China into the fold to make it a trilateral START program. Mm-hmm. China... <laughs> China um, basically told United States, we'll join if you agree to reduce your overall strategic stockpile to our level. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's basically telling the United States, yeah, reduce your stockpile between 20 to 30 percent. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we'll sign on to it. Right. When we said no, they Beijing then stated, well, we're just going to produce 40 new nuclear warheads by the end of this year. Right. So hearing that we're essentially we're nowhere closer towards making any type of agreement with a new start program between Russia and the United States, as it seems Vladimir Putin is willing to let mm-hmm. it expire. We already have the intermediate um, nuclear weapons um, treaty null and void. Um it seems that now we're now looking at, well, what is now the plausibility of continual expansions of not just strategic warheads uh, between China and the United States, but then now you hear things like the DF-26, no. um, where it has the capabilities of conventional and nuclear warheads. You have China looking now to utilize... Um, nuclear warheads for cruise missiles. Um, there are new nuclear-powered uh, drones or strategic bombers, and now they're yeah. doing uh, drone fleets. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding this, the United States is—it's really 
I mean, I'm baffled to say it that we're 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 at a we're at a strategic downfall that China, according to this book, let me get my stuff for book because this is fascinating. I definitely want to hear you t- uh, have a comment on this. Yeah. Where China was able to produce what's known as a C four ISR, a Command Control right. Communications Computers Intelligence Surveillance yep. and Reconnaissance in the Pacific. We don't really have one in the Pacific. And the one that we do have is based solely on satellites. China, mm-hmm. since 2008, has sat anti-satellite missiles in which they yeah. have tested. And the notions of a successful target, or targeting of our satellites, mm-hmm. our own C4ISR is gone. And for those right. who don't know what C4ISR is able to do, or at least what it is, I'll quote um, Spalding, essentially. Uh, where the network uses technology such as computers to sync the military's operational decision-making, which is the command and control, with the Mm -hmm. ability to to synthesize and analyze the military information, which is then the intelligence, their surveillance, and their reconnaissance, quickly, and then initiate the communications, both offensive and defensive, in order to construct the actions. Right. it, it, it uses a combinations of land-based radars, remote sensors, manned and unmanned military platforms, intelligence mm-hmm. data to optimize outcomes on the battlefield. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really. <laughs> no, no. So th- th- it's funny because a lot of the C4 ISR issues is what underpins China's anti-access area denial, where the first thing you want to do is really deny the ability to have a C4 ISR net first. Right. You take out, you know, high-level communications but there's a double-edged sword with it too that I think, you know, with, with all due respect to a lot of analysts, you know, China is still actually reliant on a lot of the United States to see for ISR mm-hmm. capabilities too and satellites. Mm-hmm. So it's a double-edged sword where if you want to knock it out, sure, you know, you can have your, you can have a backup, backup, um, Baidu, you know, satellite right. network. You can have um, GLOSNAS, you know, mm-hmm. if, if that's your option. But at the end of the day, China is still trying to figure out how to get away from that. So currently, it's still a double-edged sword. You know, 20, 30, 40 years on the line, it might not be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other part, you know, which I, I really want to drive home again is the the importance of interoperability between allies where, mm-hmm. you know, if you're fighting with Japan and Australia – and you're not in sync already, you know, and you don't have these, you know, communication platforms in the first place already developed between your joint forces. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do in battle space when you're, you know, because I mean, all of our systems we use now, it's very, it's a network based approach, right. obviously, this is what we've been expecting for a while, you know, but how, how are your forces even going to survive, you know, in the situation and to the point of the nuclear side, um, even, you know, I, I, I think any military at this point would consider possibilities beyond the strategic factors of nuclear weapons and nuclear mm-hmm. exchanges. You know, a lot of these ideas and a lot of the Cold War mentality for nuclear weapons and deterrence and nuclear deterrence are pretty much thrown, not thrown out of the window completely. There's some things we can take from it. Mm-hmm. However, at the same time, you know, as you brought in the culture side of it or as you brought in other factors of it, you know, the United States needs to take in consideration of, hey, you know, China's, uh, you know, the CCP's regime gets desperate to overtake Taiwan because of internal political factors. Mm-hmm. They essentially pulled the trigger and said, hell, you know, we're just going to go take Taiwan now. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you don't really start from the conventional shelling, mm-hmm. but you start with either A, a nuclear threat right. or the of, I guess, I, I hate the word, but tactical nuclear weapon where you right. could take out a whole entire carrier strike group, you know, at the press of a button. Right. Why not do that right. versus doing the conventional side? Because a lot, you know, a lot of the arms you mentioned, you know, the DF-21, the DF-26, the, the carrier killers, you can't tell what warhead is on there when it's launched. Right. That is super dangerous, especially when you are in a, in conventional warfare mm-hmm. because you don't know what your adversary is slinging at you. Mm-hmm. Until like, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're on the red line with the Chinese and, you know, or even if they don't want to answer the phone in the middle of conflict, that spells a lot of trouble because who says the United States won't just turn around and throw a couple of nukes into, you know, Beijing? Right. 
I mean, that's the, that's the scary part right there. Like I don't, I, there's not enough conversation about nuclear escalation, mm-hmm. not just on the vertical sense, but on the horizontal sense of nuclear right. escalation, they could, I mean, they could throw, you know, nukes in multiple places or right. multiple parts of the world too. It, it could just not even be the United States. Right. I, it's, it, it's crazy. The, the level of intensity, mm-hmm. you know, it's not even competition at this, at this point, I think, I think we are kind of at a measure of warfare already. If you consider information warfare, mm-hmm. you know, if you consider, you know, what's going on in the cyber domain, it's crazy. It's a, low, it's a, uh, a low cost warfare that we're kind of enduring with, um, with China. Uh, they're not going to, not going to call it warfare, but in the, of course. In, in the sense, you know, war can be more than just conventional, uh, hmm. especially in the 21st century. Um, but I think also that kind of alludes also to a new point where one of the one of the main problems with the United States military now is that we don't have a pure definition for the for the term of victory. Right. We don't. We we have and there's just so many analysts and policymakers who don't even like to use the term victory because of it's like, oh, what has a bad stigma that we're going in there for a political purpose. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, well. That's yeah, a point of war, you, political purpose. <laughs> I mean, Crawford <laughs> said it. That is exactly what you're doing. Um, and then there's another book that I'm reading now called Fighting Talk. Um, and part of it um, is interesting. In Maxim number two, he kind of indicates that, well, in, in any type of case, and China this also goes back to China and their uh, posturing, not just um, in Hong Kong, but also then now. Um, in in Taiwan, or even in the case of, let's say, in North Korea, if there was any type of um, escalation of conflict, just this notion of war and peace, where mm-hmm. the West doesn't think that war can lead to peace, and peace is just a cyclical notion to go back to war. We just yeah. think of it, oh, no, we rather prefer peace because it is something that has value and is of merit. That's mm-hmm. great, but that's not reality. If we look right. at reality... Peace is just a duration of time between one one conflict and another. Mm-hmm. War, the 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 end goal of war is not just you know po- um, it's not just based in politics, but it's also to implement your version of a peace, right? And then to and then to supplant it and to make sure that that version of peace remains. Mm-hmm. China's peace is to return to their this stature of where they thought that they lost it during the century of humiliation. Um, right. And then that includes... Um, but even going back to the century of humiliation, this is one thing they don't tell you. When Russia and Japan were going to war in 1904, 1905, mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt told Japan and Russia that the, the territorial integrity of China must remain intact. Right. United States and China were actually quite good questionable shady suspicious partners in trade um, especially uh, when it came to the importation of american cottons and other types of resources into china um, we were trading and we were trying to make sure especially during the open door policy that at least all tariffs remained the same um you know the uk had their own tariffs russia wanted to peace france wanted to peace um the portuguese so on and so forth um but it was after the Boxer Rebellion, once we had deployed our Marines, mm-hmm. then, especially in Beijing, we that's when we kind of got entwi- intertwined with the century of humiliation. Right. Um, I think that the core problem and the downfall of America's strategic, um, uh, I guess, preparations and capabilities to thwart any type of Chinese provocation is that Going back to when George H.W. Bush was actually, you know, the, the special representative to China, the politicians somehow that are currently now still in Congress, you know, they, you know, they live a long time. <laughs> um, exactly. They, I don't know how. They are all part of that old school cabal that's stuck in that mentality of China is essentially innocent and we have to give them what they want. Yeah. In order to make sure that liberalization of trade can continue and their political reorientation to a democracy can happen. Yeah. I, you Can you please comment on it? Because I'm like, I 
if we we've seen since the seventies, especially in the nineties after Tiananmen Square, that should have been it. We should have <laughs> said no, no right. more. But we continued, even through Clinton, mm-hmm. even through even past George W. Bush, and then the one two three agreement with Obama in twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um. It was it, it still went through, unfortunately, with the provision that each request from China has to be monitored and approved individually. But the simple fact that they are incorporated into an agreement that essentially allows them on a case-by-case basis access to decades of nuclear engineer technology experimentation and procedures to then utilize for their own dual right. usage for civilian and military capabilities. Yeah. That's an intentional vulnerability to American national security. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, is, I mean, it's it's hard to say, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, but, you know, a lot of the, let's say, you know, forefathers that, uh, you know, operated, you know, with um, Deng Xiaoping in mm-hmm. general, you know, and having this market liberalization and opening China up, you know, was mm-hmm. all set in the context of the Cold War and strategic competitions right. with the Soviets. I mean, we thought we were going to be going at it with the Soviets for years and right. years and years and years, and we'd be stuck in this bipolar system forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kenneth Waltz wasn't out here saying unipolarity in you know the, <laughs> the 1970s, 1960s. No, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, beyond that, you know, there obviously is an issue of understanding. It's really never been, at least, at least in my opinion, at this point, it's never been about democratization, so mm-hmm. to say. It's been about having more access to, to, you know, free and open markets. Mm-hmm. And China was a, you know, another stepstone in that, even if, even if it could gain in its own way. And right. that's all China, that's what China saw it for. They saw it as a gain, right. you know, even beyond the communist ideology, they understood like, Hey, we need to, you know, work our system up to be top of the line, you know, in the international system. Mm-hmm. The only way you can do that is hedging on to the head or, you know, attaching onto the hegemon right. and growing on, you know, with the United States growth and power and market liberalization. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it, it's hard to, to attribute blame, you know, to politicians. However, I do think it's incredibly, it was incredibly short-sighted right. by the politicians at the time to not see the overarching goals for China in the long run. Right. It wasn't just, Hey, you know, Americans, let's just shake hands and call it a day. You could even tell back then, you know, with, with all the Taiwan Strait crises we had, mm-hmm. you know, in the 50s, right. you know, leading on into the 90s, that these were the primary goals no matter what you gave them. Right. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say when sure, you know, the, the unipolar power in the system by the 90s and, you know, you're kicking it back, right. you know, blue jeans and, you know, McDonald's. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I mean, even beyond the jokes, it's – it's tough looking at it now because China wouldn't be where it's at without, you know, bandwagoning onto the system the United States has. Right. However, there's a catch to it too, where even if we, and beyond the whole, you know, war part of it, mm-hmm. war is still incredibly unlikely between the United States, even if there is this, you know, sort of imbalance of power, mm-hmm. growing imbalance of power. Right. Beyond that, to have the system continue to work the way that China has had it right. and edge onto the system, it either needs to do one of two things. One is maintain status quo mm-hmm. with the current, you know, um, current lines of communication and trade within the region. Mm-hmm. Or B, it needs to completely offset the United States within the system mm-hmm. and uphold it itself. Right. And the person who uphold or the, the country or the state that upholds the system inevitably has to take a lot of losses at the end of the day. And that was something I think we've seen through the past, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s with England, where it was willing to take substantial losses to, you know, promote trade or at least what was the resemblance of then of that then compared to the mercantilist attitudes. Mm -hmm. So they they completely were like, ah, tariffs, like who cares, whatever. We don't (laughs) need those. We just want to trade. And, you know, it, it, gains in certain ways, but losses in others where you reach, you know, the 20th century and all of a sudden you're no longer, you know, the top power in the international system. Right. So it's the same thing. The United States comes through, you know, after World War II, hoists up the system and says, all right, we're going to take care of it now. We want free and open trade. Mm -hmm. United States is top power. Right. That's one thing. 
now I think we're sort of reaching this intersection in 20, 30 years where you have a choice if you're China where you can continue to be aggressive mm-hmm. and you could continue to do what you're doing. But understand that if you reach top power status, you're going to have to shoulder the system itself. If the United States says, hey, you have it. It's your problem right. now. You know, you can uphold all these things. Right. You can write it within your within your own name. But understand the losses might be, you know, bigger than the gains. Right. That's, I mean, that's, that. It's a weird way. It's a weird way of putting it, but I I think. No, but it makes sense. But I mean, look at it It, now for the United States. Like, you know, if you're talking about, you know, GDP per capita for Mm -hmm. the United States and, you know, how happy we are as a society, that's one thing. And then you look at our generation, so to say, <laughs> you know, and the amount of money that we're bringing in are really the lack thereof. Right. It's a, and a lot of the, you know, in, instabilities within the United States is actually based off of, I think, some of the free market liberalization issues that kind of come along with that, mm-hmm. where, you know, elites are inevitably going to gain, you know, more than, let's say, your lower middle class people in the society. That's one thing. I mean, beyond the economics you know, there's a lot of cost that ensues with it domestically if you choose to hedge the system right. in the way it is. Right. So, I mean, maybe that's something China's going to have to keep an eye out for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, <laughs> that's a, um, that's actually a very good way to, um, rather, in this segment, and there would definitely be a part two to this. Um, I think the next part we should probably talk more on the the economic rise of china mm-hmm. um, because as soon as you know especially after the gulf war when they realized their downfalls especially at least with their military capabilities um china changed their attitudes yeah um i i, I mean i honestly i would take a risk and i will go back to even the korean war uh, mm-hmm. When they realized that the the wave, t- the mass wave tactics, meant nothing in compared to American air superiority, mm-hmm. um, I think that's in order for us to understand to to be able to talk about China now, we have to look at China then. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And then along the way, then we can then we can kind of have our eureka moments to say okay well this is why they are acting the way they are now um you know war is a continue is a continuum of historical past and present Mm -hmm. so in order for you to know the now and tomorrow you need to know the past and yesteryear um so with that not to be all aristotle philosophy because <laughs> it just got deep. Um, yeah. Um, we will end the episode with that, and then um, we'll definitely schedule to have you come back and kind of pick up on where it kind of started. And that's the yeah. century of humiliation. Cool. Um, hopefully, you won't feel humiliated yourself. No, um, hopefully not. No, you won't. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> but with that, I bid you, Finro, have a good night, and we'll talk soon. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. See ya.